2 Samuel 15, verses 13 through 31. And a messenger came to David, saying, The hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. Then David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise and let us flee, or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us quickly, and bring down ruin on us, and strike the city with the edge of the sword. And the king's servants said to the king, Behold, your servants are ready to do whatever my lord the king decides. So the king went out, and all his household after him, and the king left ten concubines to keep the house. And the king went out, and all the people after him, and they halted at the last house. And all his servants passed by him, and all the Cherethites, and all the Pelethites, and all the six hundred Gittites who had followed him from Gath, passed on before the king. Then the king said to Ittai the Gittite, Why do you also go with us? Go back and stay with the king, for you are a foreigner and also an exile from your home. You came only yesterday, and shall I today make you wander about with us, since I go, I know not where? Go back and take your brothers with you, and may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you. But Ittai answered the king, As the Lord lives, and as my lord the king lives, wherever my lord the king shall be, whether from death or for life, there also will your servant be. And David said to Ittai, Go then, pass on. So Ittai the Gittite passed on with all his men and all the little ones who were with him. And all the land wept aloud at all the people as all the people passed by. And the king crossed the brook Kidron, and all the people passed on toward the wilderness. And Abiathar came up, and behold, Zadok came also with him, with, with all the Levites, bearing the ark of the covenant of God. And they set down the ark of God until the people had all passed out of the city. Then the king said to Zadok, Carry the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see both it and his dwelling place. But if he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am. Let him do to me what seems good to him. The king also said to Zadok the priest, Are you not a seer? Go back to the city in peace with your two sons, Ahimaaz, your son, and Jonathan, the son of Abiathar. See, I will wait at the fords of the wilderness until word comes from you to inform me. So Zadok and Abiathar carried the ark of God back to Jerusalem, and they remained there. But David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered. And all the people who were with him covered their heads, and they went up weeping as they went. And it was told David, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. I don't know if it's the first for you, but it certainly is for me. The sermon this morning is not coming from the passage that we just read um, for the scripture reading, but we're actually going to be studying the scripture that we read for our responsive reading. So if you'll turn in your Bibles to Psalm 3, the sermon this morning is entitled, Salvation Belongs to Yahweh. Now the reason for um, this turn of events is twofold. Um, I know that you have a history... uh, there's, there's a preference that you use the Psalms from the Psalter for responsive reading. 
And uh, I wanted to honor that this week, even though, uh, as I'll be coming down, we'll be looking at the Psalms specifically. Now, the irony, if you will, is that uh, the back of the Trinity hymnal does not have Psalm 3 as a responsive reading. So even in my attempt at goodwill, I still had to uh, create it and have a printout. Um, But the primary reason uh, that we're doing things a little bit different today is... um, The passage that we read from 2 Samuel 15 gives some historical background to what has been passed on to us as as the context for Psalm 3. And I thought there was value in us considering that. The heading of Psalm 3 ties the context of the psalm with David's flight from Jerusalem when Absalom attempted to steal the throne. It is believed by some scholars that this is the historical background for Psalms 3, 4, and 5. And this is why I wanted to read that account this morning as we prepared for the sermon in order to help us understand the context and some background to David's struggle. Additionally, Derek Kidner wisely observed, while the title brings a reminder of the king's personal grief, the psalm itself reveals the larger questions that were pressing upon him. The rising tide of disloyalty the rumor that God had withdrawn from him, and the precarious state of his people. And it is for these reasons that this psalm is considered not only a lament, but also a kingship psalm, because of the context of the experience beyond David as an individual, but rather also with its ramifications against David's reign and the future of the nation and its people. Last time I was here, we considered Psalm 1 and 2. And you might remember um, that neither of those psalms had a heading. So Psalm 3 is the first in the Psalter with a title or a heading. It is in my opinion that believers take the the headings or these titles very seriously as as they have been passed on to us. Now, uh, the Old Testament was originally written in Hebrew. And manuscripts were copied as they wore out over time. The Old Greek, the Septuagint and the Old Greek translation of the Old Testament was completed no later than 300 B.C. And in the Old Greek translations and manuscripts that that were passed on to us, these translators captured these headings from the manuscripts that that they copied from the, the Hebrew that had been passed down. And... The Masoretes uh, were scribes that in A.D. 9th to 11th century were updating the translation uh, reading of the, um, of the Old Testament into Hebrew. And one of the main things that they did when they were updating the manuscripts was to put vowel points, markers, in there so that those who had lost the art of reading Hebrew would remember how to pronounce certain things. But even... At the time, uh, 9th to 11th century, when the Masoretes were doing this translation, they were copying not from the Greek manuscripts, but from ancient Hebrew manuscripts as well. And they also captured these same headings and titles. So even if it's possible that these headings and titles were not part of the inspired text of the author, and even if they weren't the inspired text of the editors who consolidated the Psalms and the Psalter over time and arranged it in the order that they did. Um, It's evident that there were editors involved, but I also believe that God blessed 
the editors that handled the, the Lord's word, um, with, that, that the Holy Spirit guided them just like he did the original authors. Um, and since we can't prove otherwise, what we have today is, is we have received what they have passed down. So it, it seems reasonable to accept um, the headings as we receive them. Nevertheless, Trumper Longman reminds us the purpose of the psalm is not to memorialize the event, but to provide a model for those who find themselves in similar but not necessarily identical situations. For believers throughout the centuries, Psalm 3 has been considered a morning prayer, while Psalm 4 is an evening prayer. And Lord willing, we'll be studying the evening prayer of Psalm 4 in the education hour to follow, to follow after our fellowship luncheon. Psalm 5 is also considered a morning prayer, as is Psalm 3. And uh, again, Lord willing, I'll be preaching from Psalm 5 um, the morning of, or the, the afternoon of August 20th in just a, a couple weeks. The last thing of note about the heading is that this heading says that it's a psalm of David. And that denotes the authorship. There has been speculation, but I'll save you the trouble and tell you that the preposition uh, translated as of is well and properly translated, and that this identifies authorship, that it is a psalm of David. And the other thing that we should note, um, by the word psalm itself, its definition means that it is a song sung with musical accompaniment, with instrumental accompaniment. So there are Bible-believing churches that believe that you should not worship with musical instruments, and I just don't see it when we consider the psalms themselves, where God loves to have um, and, and has called for instruments to accompany his uh, songs. Now, before we consider the text of, psalm, of this psalm, I want us to briefly consider its structure. Now, Bruce Waltke partnered with several other scholars in producing multiple volumes on the psalms. And together they stated, like, the, like most petition psalms, Psalm 3 consists of five parts. First, his address to God. And that's found in the first verse with the first word. Second, a description of the psalmist's lamentable state. And we see that in verses 1 and 2. Third, we see his confidence, which is an affirmation of his trust, which is in verses 3 and 4. Then a validation of that faith in verses 5 and 6. Fourth, the psalmist provides his twofold petition for his deliverance and the punishment of the enemy in verse 7. In connection with the fifth point, a benediction upon the nation. And it's additionally worth noting that in this short psalm, this eight-verse psalm, that Yahweh appears six times. And in this, David asserts that his confidence and salvation are in Yahweh alone as he seeks Yahweh's protection and blessing. And this is our first point for this morning. Yahweh, my shield, from verses 1 through 3. O Yahweh, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, O Yahweh, are a shield about me, my glory, and the lifter of my head. In verses 1 and 2, we observe the three-time use of the word many. 
Many are my foes. Many are rising. Many are saying. Now, uh, poetically, this this uh, has an official title. It's called Anaphora. Um, and it's a rhetorical device that just t- takes an individual word and sometimes a phrase and repeats it um, for its po- poetic value. And additionally, these three verses in which these many are repeated, they bracket David's cry to Yahweh. Oh, Yahweh, how many are my foes in verse one? And in verse three, he says, but you, oh, Yahweh, are a shield about me. So despite the many foes. Uh, This small portion is bracketed by David's look to Yahweh. O Yahweh, how many are my foes, but you are a shield about me. In the first verse, the psalmist stresses how his enemies have multiplied. The reader can sense David's despair, that he is being outnumbered while his allies are few. Consider that David's many foes included not just Absalom, but for all intents and purposes, It was the whole nation of Israel who had abandoned David, apart from these few faithful friends who fled with him across the Kidron Valley from Jerusalem. Moreover, his enemies were asserting that even God had abandoned him. Waltke observes, laments typically include a complaint that the foe is too strong, the psalmist too weak, and God absent. All three are mentioned or inferred in the enemy's taunt. God will not deliver him. As the nation in general and David's enemies in particular saw the rising tide of the rebellion against David, they were convinced that David's God had removed his blessing from him and that their assaults would be unthwarted. They were the many who would stop them. Certainly not David's God. This cut David to the quick and it pierced his soul. And so we see the progression of his complaint from the words against me to of my soul. Now, to compound this situation, the responsibility to deliver the cause of justice falls particularly on the king. But now the king was impotent to restrain his foes and had to flee. There is at least one time in David's life when he trusted that the strength of his men would save him. In 2 Samuel 24, it recounts that when David was uh, prompted to conduct a census because Yahweh was displeased with him, David incurred God's wrath when he counted his fighting men because he can, as, as he confesses, when I felt secure, I said, I will never be shaken. Yet David knew that he had no one on whom to rely but Yahweh. And while David's foes assert that there is no salvation for him in God, the psalmist expresses his confidence in God as his shield. Now, another interesting note about the uh, Psalms of the Old Greek translation is that there seemed to be a cultural issue that the translators had with describing God with the use of inanimate terms and objects. So when in Hebrew, the psalmist would write things like the Lord is my rock or the Lord is my shield or a fortress. um, They chose to translate the picture of what those words referred to instead of translating the actual word from Hebrew into Greek. And so in this case, they chose But you, O Lord, are my protector. And rightly so. David is pictured as Yahweh's protector, a shield round about him. In these words, David is rehearsing the covenantal language that Yahweh introduced when he 
addressed Abram in Genesis 15.1 before instituting the Abrahamic covenant. Yahweh said, Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Not only is Yahweh David's shield, he is David's glory. Here's an example of an, of an ellipsis where the, wherein the psalmist carries over the verb, or a subject in many cases, from A in order to retain the terseness of B. Or sometimes to have more room to expand the thought in the second phrase. So we know in verse 3 the words, you, Yahweh, are, from A, phrase A, are implied in phrase B. But you, O Yahweh, are a shield about me. You, O Yahweh, are my glory. So what does that mean? Well, Waltke states that glory, which literally means heaviness, and from which is derived the notions of weight, dignity, importance, honor, refers to objective realities such as property, a noble wife, or a political position, which in turn gives the subject the respect of society. Glory is equal to the substance and the honor associated with it. So what David is stating is that Yahweh is the substance, if you will, that gives David his right standing, that, makes, that gives David his honor. And likewise, it is Yahweh who lifts up David's head from humility and dishonor to value and comfort. Furthermore, you, O Yahweh, are my glory, is an idiom of confidence. David is confident that Yahweh is his shield and salvation, and that's the, the poetic way for him to make that declaration. Believer, who are your enemies? The purpose of this psalm to be passed down to us is not to find ourselves in David's situation, but to think of how these words impact us. Are your enemies the world, the flesh, and the devil? Are your enemies amassing against you? Do you face a spiritual foe, or do you have men or women who seek your harm? Yahweh is your shield. It is Yahweh who gives us our right standing and our comfort. When I had initially deployed to Afghanistan, I was part of a multinational force. And within the staff of the headquarters was an American civilian that really seemed to have it out for me. I could never figure out how to reconcile that situation. Behind my back and sometimes in my face, he would try to insult my reputation. To add insult to injury, the man was both an American and he claimed to be a Christian. There were plenty of people who disregarded his insults, but it caused me a lot of stress and grief in an already difficult situation. I knew that God was my only hope and trust, and I chose not to fight with this man about it in the physical realm. Later, while we were both still in Afghanistan, but working for different organizations, we ended up at the same meeting, and his insults picked up right again. Um, as he tried to slander me in front of my co-workers and, and subordinates. But I was so encouraged, however, to have one of my junior officers that was there who um, took to my defense and shut down the man's lies. And I believe that this was God's way of using human means to be a shield for me. David, too, would institute several methods of subversion and secretive intelligence on a human level. If you were to continue reading in 2 Samuel 15, 16, and so on, we see the acts of David there, where God used human means. But David knew that regardless of what he would attempt, it was only in Yahweh who would be his shield. 
And in the end, it was Yahweh who would reunite David with his kingdom. Paul also reminds us, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith. Regardless of who our enemies are, our confidence of faith must be in Yahweh alone. What else is implied as we consider Yahweh as our shield or the command to put on the whole armor of God? The implication is that we are in a conflict. Our lives are at stake. And I want to offer a sober reminder. The Holy Spirit reminds us in several New Testament passages that the life of the Christian will consist of trials, persecution, and hardship. Paul told Timothy that we cannot escape it. He wrote, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Jesus also taught, And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. In your suffering and whatever enemies you are personally facing, your only comfort is Yahweh, your shield. And as David fled for his life, he turned to the ordinary means of grace, and he cried out to Yahweh for relief. So we see our second point, Yahweh my sustainer, in verses 4 through 6. I cried aloud to Yahweh, and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for Yahweh sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. David had fled Jerusalem. He left his home, his throne, and the hill where Yahweh revealed his presence on earth in the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant on Mount Zion. David crossed the Kidron Valley and he found shelter on the Mount of Olives. And from there he would cry out and he would worship Yahweh. And Jesus reminds us in John 4, 24, God is a spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And although Yahweh's presence was realized on the adjacent hill, Yahweh heard David's plea as he cried out from the Mount of Olives, and Yahweh answered him. And even in David's tremendous adversity, Yahweh was his sustainer. In Yahweh, David was able to lie down and sleep in peace. And he woke again because Yahweh sustained him. Additionally, in his rest, he was refreshed and strengthened. With his eyes set on Yahweh, David no longer feared the ten thousands of enemies who surrounded and set themselves up against him. Now, there's a popular quote among the military. The quote itself is from Richard Grenier, but it was his summation of several statements from, um, from the writings of George Orwell. People sleep peacefully in their beds at night, only because rough men stand ready to do violence on their behalf. This was not the source of David's peace. It was not the might of men on whom David relied. David acknowledged that it was Yahweh who sustained him. The psalmist demonstrates his complete faith in Yahweh, for he laid down to sleep in the confident hope that Yahweh would hear and answer his prayer and would be his sure defense, his shield and sustainer. Thus, in the morning, he awakens, the face, he awakens to face the day without fear. So too, believer, Yahweh is your sustainer. It is in Yahweh we live and move and have our being. The author of Hebrews likewise states of Jesus, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. 
And so we rehearse the doxology of Jude. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now, and forevermore. Amen. Yahweh is my shield, and Yahweh is my sustainer. And third, Yahweh is my Savior. We see that in verses 7 and 8. Arise, O Yahweh, Save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to Yahweh. Your blessings be on your people. In verse 8, we see a simple A-B parallelism. In A is the first is the verb arise, while in A prime, the purpose is demonstrated by the verb save. Arise to my defense so that I may be saved. The second parallelism is David's address to Yahweh in B, who is then called my God in B prime. Arise, O Yahweh, save me, O my God. The phrase, arise, O Yahweh, is also a historic military cry to arms. And this call is found as early in the Pentateuch in Numbers 10, 35 through 36. Whenever the ark set out, Moses said, Arise, O Yahweh, and let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. And then, when it rested, he said, Return, O Yahweh, to the ten thousand thousands of Israel. And the other thing that struck me about this reference that must have been in David's mind, in Numbers 10.36 was the description of God's people as, the ten thousand thousands of Israel. While in Psalm 3.6, David's enemies, though numerous, were only counted as the ten thousands of people. The ESV says many people or something along those lines, but um, the word behind the translation is ten thousands. And yet, um, Moses' image and illustration is that the people of God are ten thousand thousands. Knowing that Yahweh wins the victory for his people, David recalls in poetic terms how Yahweh defeats the wicked. Again, we see the parallelism of these two phrases. You strike pairs with you break, in which we see an intensification of the action. Enemies likewise pairs with the wicked. These traitors were not merely David's enemies. They are the wicked whom God hates. And thirdly, cheek is paired with teeth. Now, the Hebrew word translated by the ESV as cheek can rightly include the chin and the jawbone. Though the strike of Yahweh's fist, so to speak, is on the external surface of the face of the enemy, figuratively speaking, its impact penetrates to the bone beneath. It is not a mere slap on the cheek. Furthermore, the intensification of the B phrase demonstrates that Yahweh's blow breaks the teeth. In verses 7 and 8, we see the salvation theme return to a climax. In verse 2, David's enemies claimed that he had no salvation in God. Yet in verses 3 through 6, David validates his faith and confidence that Yahweh is his shield and sustainer. Having demonstrated his faith, David now cries out to God for him to fight on David's behalf. David is essentially saying, you are my shield and my sustainer. Save me. We also see the salvation inclusio that brackets the entire psalm between verses 2 and 8. 
where David's enemies asserted there is no salvation for him in God. In verse 8, we see David's doxology or praise as he proclaims salvation belongs to Yahweh. And then David concludes his, his prayer, his psalm, with a benediction. Your blessing beyond your people. The psalm has reminded believers through the century that Yahweh hears the cry of his people. And Yahweh saves his people to the uttermost. We have a context to the psalm in David's flight from his son who sought to usurp the throne and make a public mockery of his father, the king. The context may help us understand how difficult David's struggle was. Our struggles and our enemies are distinctly different. Sometimes our enemies are on the spiritual level as we fight against our sinful desires, the draw of the world's pleasures, or unknown spiritual warfare. Yahweh is your salvation. Your enemy might also be in the physical realm, with an ailment that plagues your body, or other men who are set about to make your life difficult, perhaps a neighbor, a co-worker, a boss, or even a family member. Cry out to Yahweh. He is your shield and sustainer. On the eternal level, this psalm points us to Jesus Christ, Yeshua Yahweh, the second person of the Trinity. It is only through Jesus Christ that we have salvation from God. In our sin, we were all at enmity with God. Yet instead of breaking our teeth in the everlasting punishment that we deserve, Jesus paid the penalty of the wrath of God in his death on the cross. Furthermore, Jesus lived the life of righteousness that we could not, so that only Yahweh is our glory and the lifter of our heads. We have a right standing with God because of the righteousness of Christ imputed to us through faith. If you have never put your faith in Jesus Christ for the salvation of your soul and the forgiveness of your sins, then you are still an enemy of God. But Paul declared, Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Right now is the time for you to turn away from your sin, reject it, and ask for the forgiveness from God, whom you have offended in your rebellion. You can pray silently even now to confess your sins, to accept Jesus Christ as your Savior. But certainly, if you have any questions before you leave today, find someone and ask us. Don't leave here in your uncertainty so that we can point you to God, who is our shield, our sustainer and our salvation. Let us pray.